Hello and welcome back to Witchfix. Today we are talking about the final book in Silver Ravenwolf's Witches Chiller series, Witches Key to Terror. And I actually have to say that after giving the first book a really hard time and the second book possibly even more of a hard time, I actually felt for most of this book that it was the best in the series. And this is mostly because it's the only one out of the three that I think has an investigation and a mystery that kind of carries all the way through instead of being set up at the beginning, not mentioned in the middle, and then played out in a few pages at the end. There are quite a few clues placed out through the story. You stand a basic chance of being able to work out in advance who the actual killer is or what is going on. And for the most part, I didn't find it as annoying as previous books in terms of like the continuity lapses or just random things not being explained or being out of place. However, several of my long-running gripes... Is it long-running gripes if there's only three books? My gripes. They came back with a vengeance just as I let my guard down. So without further ado, let's get into it. So one thing I really did like about the book is that the plot kind of centres around a mystery that then becomes a murder. So it doesn't blow its load in the first couple of pages with, oh my god, there's been a killing. It kind of builds up this sense of unease and things not being quite right. Then a murder happens, and it's a murder that involves a poison apple. So all of these things are things that I like, things that I appreciate. Uh, I kind of like the idea of there being like a poison apple, which is like a traditional like witchy murder snow whitey type thing which again very much appreciated the book starts off by establishing some new characters cricket and tad bindart who work on a farm which their dad owns out in the countryside way 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 out of town they are homeschooled kids and their dad is quite domineering and religious and uh, he believes in homeschooling and he doesn't really believe in a whole lot else so they're not really allowed to to do a lot and at the opening of the book cricket finds a dead rabbit uh, a dead black rabbit stuffed in her mailbox with a threatening note that she can't really read who it's addressed to because of the blood that's on it so that obviously sets the scene of something very weird happening and after that opening bit where she talks to tad a little bit about how he's been sneaking off and getting on with girls instead of doing what their dad actually thinks he's doing which is working we cut to the series regulars Bethany, Tilly and Nam in the high school cafeteria talking about just general teenager shit and then a bunch of rabbits get loose or get set loose from the agricultural lab and cause a kind of stir in the cafeteria and I was like aha a connection a clue. We also have some new antagonists uh, at the school because I don't really know what happened to the, the evil bitch girl from books one and two I think her name was Vanessa, but apparently she's out of the picture now. Maybe that was something that happened in the second book and I've just forgotten. But she's been replaced by a bitch girl who seems to be entirely the same, except her name is Renee. And you might remember from book two that Bethany started going out with Sydney, the Native American guy. And Renee basically implies that Sydney's into her now and that they've been going on dates behind Bethany's back and that they are, in fact, sleeping together. So Bethany gets kind of annoyed at Sydney, but obviously doesn't address it with him directly. That adds like a teeny bit of drama, I guess, to the story and a little bit of mystery as to what's actually going on. But to be honest, it kind of gets forgotten about quite a lot. So I don't really think it added anything for me, at least. But the two other antagonists who are introduced are Janet, who is kind of a surly goth. 
and she's transferring from their school to like the out of town country high school which is like their rival school she seems to be kind of pissed off at them and just angry at bethany for no real reason that i can tell and alice is her friend slash hanger on who doesn't like the girls and makes a lot of references to the fact that they're witches and kind of making fun of them now the main kind of event at the start of the book that sets the plot in motion is that tilly nam and bethany all need money because they've got car payments coming up and they all got fired from the diner in the first book so they kind of need work and janet who hasn't really shown her true colors as an evil bitch suggest that they go and work at the Bindar Orchard because she just quit there, they can't really keep hold of staff and the whole family's weird, so hey, you guys should go work there. They do go there, they work there for about half a day and then get fired, for reasons that I will discuss in a moment. But then they get repeatedly offered their jobs back and then they don't take them back, even though they want to go there and snoop around looking for looks and cluing for clues, but they don't take their jobs back, even though like there's multiple reasons for them to do so and that drove me absolutely up the wall I, I i it just annoyed me so you have to they had to come up with these like contrived reasons like oh we'll drive out there in the middle of the night and look for clues it's like or you could get paid for clue for clues during the daytime and then you could keep your car several mentions are made to mysteries afoot at the orchard typically uh, a fire is mentioned like a dramatic event in the past and also the death of a female migrant worker or death slash disappearance slash something bad happened to her we don't know what but spoiler alert she did um so there's all these things kind of building up together with obviously the scene we've already had with the dead rabbit bringing the sense of unease the girls are heading into something bad and spooky and slightly strange and i really appreciated that it kind of set it up quite nicely we've had kind of like cold opens in the previous books where people were either already dead or their murders happen within the first couple of pages so it was kind of nice to get eased into this one and have a little bit of backstory and setup. Now I want to remind you again that at the end of all these books the same little passage by Silver Ravenwolf talking about how she came up with the idea for the Teen Witch series based on the pictures on the front of her book Teen Witch which was like a, a non-fiction book and how she wanted to write a book which is real teens with real magic not like in the movies not like in fairy tales. But then in all of the books, there are these elements that are like, well, that's just plain up fantastical magic. So uh, just keep that in mind as we discuss some of the next events that happened in the book. Basically, Tad is working at the same time as the girls are having their first day at work. And he accidentally loses a finger in some farming equipment. And then Bethany does something magical, which stops the blood flowing and people comment on this and say it's like a, a thing that they've known other people who can do and that it's like a powwow thing but she's like a teenager she's using apparently magic to stop someone bleeding to death from a severed finger now i can understand like using like acupressure or reflex reflexology or some sort of relaxation technique to get someone's heart rate to slow and therefore slow the rate of bleeding which might seem like magic, but that's definitely not what she's doing in this extract. This is from page 41. She nodded her head and closed her eyes once more, beginning the chant again, repeating the words in an unending litany, her hands outstretched. At first, their prayerful mutterings were disconcerting, but she allowed herself to fall into the energy. Her fingers tingled and the heat grew in her palms. Confidence spread through her as she felt the familiar peace and strength of the healing energy as it pulsed through her body. She grabbed onto that confidence, feeling the surge of power. 
Finally, as always when doing a healing, she saw the eyes of her guardian before her own, big cat-wide eyes that signalled the healing was blessed and always in the hands of spirit. Still, she did not quit. Balancing on her haunches, she began to rock, losing the sense of time and place, thinking only of stopping the blood. Release the worry, do the work, echoed Ramona's voice in her mind. And then the bleeding stops. So she's not actually doing anything to him. She's not involving him in this chant or anything, like getting him to repeat it to calm him down and keep him like grounded and focused. She's not like touching him or activating pressure points or pulse points that would slow down his heart rate. She's just sitting there chanting and feeling a flow of energy. And I don't care how strongly you believe in the power of witchcraft, but I don't think that's ever going to stop blood pouring out of someone's open wound. That was slightly on the edge of fantastical, but to be honest, by the end of the book, such a greater instance of fantastical witchcraft had occurred that I actually forgot about this scene until just now. Now, Alice, the kind of bitchy anti-witch girl from the high school, also happens to work at the farm and has been bugging Bethany all day. And seeing that this accident has occurred, she loses no time in jumping out and saying that Bethany caused the accident somehow. And rather than investigating this or anything like that, Mr. Binder, who is Tad and Cricket's dad, fires the lot of them on the spot, even though Tilly wasn't actually with Nam and Bethany at the time of the accident. Page 44, he gives quite a speech. You're fired. You can take your friends with you. You're nothing but the devil's own, he screamed, shaking a gnarled finger at Bethany and Nam. How else would you have been able to stop the blood? You hurt him and then you tried to fix it, just like a demon trying to work a false miracle. Alice told me earlier you were all our evil witches. Been in the paper. I don't care if your father is a cop. He can be the top cop for all I care. You can collect the black girl at the top of the ridge. Don't come back here ever. So he seems pretty pissed off. Now, if I was to tell you that by the end of this book, he'd be sitting down to Thanksgiving dinner with the lot of them. That might seem a little bit unexpected because it's not just the fact that he thinks that Bethany has caused the accident that is why he's mad. He is mad at her because she has demonstrated some sort of supernatural power in stopping the flow of blood. He knows somehow, I guess from Alice, that she and her friends are witches and has a massive problem with that he thinks they worship the devil uh, and he's read about their antics in the paper so he knows that they've been connected to if not implicated in multiple murders and clearly is not a fan so the fact that by the end of the book they kind of do him one good turn doesn't really explain his sudden 180 in not thinking that they are devil worshippers anymore but just accepting that they are lovely and wonderful and we'll see a little bit more of his various up and downs in temperament throughout the book there are a couple of mentions of some hauntings as well during that whole half day that they work there this ghost story stuff doesn't really ever come to anything but again it adds kind of a nice frisson of expectant tension to the air so i was enjoying that also during the course of that half day that they worked at the orchard bethany found something that she refers to as a tanglefoot hiding underneath the stairs to the little farm shop where she's been working and it's basically like a lump of tangled wire with some stuff in the middle that she can't see what it is because it's covered in wire and then also tad cut his finger off so she was distracted now i googled tanglefoot and i couldn't find it referenced in any wiccan or witchcrafty sense i found a couple of bands that are called tanglefoot i found some references to skyrim and runescape which are games um i think one has a village called tanglefoot 
but I couldn't find anything to do with this actually being a thing. Um, I, of course, only did a cursory Google, so I'm not saying it's not a thing, but it's apparently not such a popular thing that it's on like the first couple of pages of Google results, so I don't know what to tell you. Anyway, because she's seen this thing, Bethany decides that she can't just leave it there to curse the Bindart family, so they go back there in the dead of night, naturally, to try and retrieve it. It's at this point that they get discovered by Cricket's older sister, who is a little bit cagey about some other things and is also just randomly carrying a shotgun around with her. She offers them their jobs back, but they don't take them back because of, I guess, a crippling fear of easy access to crime scenes and money. But again, the presence of this like cursed object on the pinned up farm adds a new layer of mystery, a new layer of something going on. And we're actually getting plot events that are connected to things that have happened that are connected to the mystery. So I was quite excited. Also, when leaving the farm in the dead of night, because of course they're still there in the dead of night, they nearly get run over by a black bronco, which is a car that's mentioned a few times through the book. Uh, from Cricket's point of view, she sees it following her sometimes. They see it around, seemingly tailing them as well. So again, another layer of mystery, another thing that's going on. So again, intriguing. Colour me intrigued. Now, the big crime type thing that happens in the book happens around page 90 or at least that's sort of where it starts getting set up because Clarence who is a guy who works on the farm finds Cricket sneaking around she's snuck off to speak to the witch girls because she's hoping that they can work out whatever the fuck's going on at the farm with all this weird shit that's happening and Clarence says he's not gonna tell on her for sneaking off of the farm and he says your daddy finds out you've been sneaking off the property. There'll be hell to pay. I hope you remember to eat your breakfast, he said, tossing her an apple with a flick of the wrist, surprisingly quick for his age. Cricket caught it and smiled. He's given her an apple. So hold on to the idea that Clarence has given Cricket this apple because this becomes relevant, believe it or not. Six pages later, Cricket is doing a shift in the farm shop with Alice and she's trying to get away because she wants to go and talk to Bethany again but Alice is kind of being weird and asking her a lot of questions about Tan and how he's doing in hospital and all that jazz which is suspicious AF but then we hear this on page 96. Cricket felt sick to her stomach. She wished Alice would go find a time warp and never return. She rolled the apple Clarence gave her this morning across the counter, letting it mix with those on the display. She wasn't hungry. Alice snatched the apple. Don't put that there. You've been playing with it and probably bruised it. She set the apple under the counter. Are you sure you don't want it? Cricket shook her head. I'll just leave it under the counter. Maybe you'll be hungry later. We don't want to waste a good product, do we? Cricket wanted to gag. Three pages later, page 99. Alice hung up the phone, then tucked her purse under her arm. I've got to go. Maybe I can get in to see Tad. Do you mind if I take that apple? She stepped across the fallen stool to reach the fruit. Help yourself, said Cricket, picking up the stool and shoving the apple in Alice's hand. She held her breath as she watched Alice slowly clomp down the wide porch steps and meander over to her car. Her spiky blonde hair glittered in the sunlight. And then on page 100, right at the end, it says, For the hundredth time, Cricket wished that Alice Clement would just drop dead. Words that will prove to be portentous, methinks. Or me knows, because I've read the book. Because, oh yes, on page 138, the police come round to Bethany's house yet again to be like, hey, Alice Clement's dead. Da-da-da! Da-da-da! 
So you may have connected what I said about a poison apple earlier with the fact that Alice very conspicuously took an apple and is now dead. And we will come back to this in a moment. The killer gets unmasked as being Janet all along. And I'll get into the reasons why momentarily once I'm done with this whole apple business, because the apple business did annoy me. OK, so from what I said earlier, you can probably work out that I was pretty much thinking Clarence was the killer because he gave an apple to Cricket. She then didn't want the apple and passed it on to Alice. Then Alice dies. So fairly clear if the apple was tainted in some way, it was meant for Cricket and it was from Clarence. And then on page 233, Janet says, I made her drink the same poison I gave Alice. Stupid Alice. All along, she thought I was making love potions for her. So it's pretty clear that there's poison involved and Janet is taking credit for having poisoned Alice and I was like well how did that work because her dad for the large part and it's explained in the book wasn't really aware of the specifics of what she was doing he was kind of aware that she was losing her marbles a little bit and up to nothing good but definitely not involved in the plot so how would he know to take a poison apple to cricket and if the poison was always intended for Alice how would she have come across it so I started thinking okay maybe Alice was poisoned separately and the apple was just a rosy red circular herring but then on page 238 we get the deathbed confession of Clarence and he says Alice came over here that Sunday I just finished checking on Janet when the girl pulled up she had the apple in her hand I remember his voice drifted Janet must have put the poison in it couldn't be no other way so he attributes the poison again to this apple, but it's the apple he gave Cricket. So this is a very inexact way of killing someone if, as is Janet's stated intention, she meant to kill Alice all along and not Cricket. So she just poisoned an apple and then her dad, of his own free will, just thought to take it and give it to Cricket for some unknown fucking reason. And then Cricket happened to not want to eat it, so she happened to give it to Alice. And then Alice ate it, but Janet had presumably wanted to poison Alice all along. So I, I don't understand the whole apple thing. It seemed very confused. And then in the kind of family dinner mystery roundup scene at the end of the book, where everyone's talking about the little bits that they know that happened off screen that need to be filled in for plot reasons. What we get told is Alice went along because she thought that the Tanglefoot, the Witch's Ladder and the Love Potion in the apple was so that Tad would find her more appealing, never realising that Janet was trying to make Tad leave Alice and come back to her. The police think that's why Alice ate the apple. But she didn't know there was anything in the apple. As far as she knew, it was just an apple that Cricket didn't want, that she just put down. But apparently, by the end of the book, not only did Alice apparently know that she was the intended recipient of the apple, which no one knew at the time, but she also knew that it was meant to have some sort of potion inside of it. And she took it willingly by eating the apple, which, again, was not given to her directly by Janet. It was given to Cricket by Clarence, who didn't know that it was poisoned. So that kind of soured me on the whole, pun intended, uh, poisoned apple thing, because although it was a good idea, the way it's carried off in the plot is just bananas. Because either, <laughs> pun intended again, bananas. And it's just very strange because either there are two apples and the first apple is irrelevant and the second one is never mentioned or there are so many different variations on the story of who ate what apple and why that the author has just become completely confused and is no longer making any logical sense and i don't know which is which anyway 
enough about fruit and on with some other elements of the mystery. So we're told on page 108 by Cricket that my mother stopped talking the day after grandpa died. My sister Leslie sort of took over the mothering part in the family. That was two years ago. So it's been two years since her mum spoke and her older sister Leslie is now like in charge of the house and her dad reigns over them all supreme. So her mum's just not talking and it's not clear why Cricket doesn't seem to know or if she does, she doesn't mention it. Then on page 111, we get told about uh, Cricket's grandfather in a bit more detail. It's not that big of a deal, said Cricket. He was a powwow artist, sort of a faith healer that works magic. When he died, my father burned everything, his notes, papers, diaries, even his bed. My father thought he could keep the fire under control, but it got out of hand. He never figured out how. He was sure he put it out, but in the night it fled up and took out several buildings, a whole stand of pear trees, and the barn next to the house. A lot of animals died. One worker was severely burned. It was horrid. I think my father secretly feels Grandpa caused the fire from beyond the grave as a sort of revenge, but my grandfather wasn't like that at all. He would never do anything to hurt his family, and since that fire, we've been miserable in a lot of ways. So, again, there are two things to keep in mind here. We found out a little bit more about the granddad. Uh, I wondered if maybe the mum's silence was something to do with the fire. Maybe she knew something and felt guilty about it. And it was like a psychosomatic thing. She lost her voice. But also, here's another prime example of how old man Binder really hates magic. His father-in-law was a practitioner of a kind of magical art. And when he died, he was so desperate to cleanse the house of any of that stuff that he burned all of his notes and papers, even his bed and personal possessions. And was so desperate to do so that he inadvertently caused a fire that destroyed part of his house and business. Does this sound like someone who'd be having Thanksgiving with a bunch of witches at the end of the book? No, it does not. But again, that is exactly what happens. Page 124, we get some information about Leslie Cricket's older sister. Because she basically starts talking to Cricket. They're having a little bit of a, a chat in the middle of the night about various mysterious topics. And Leslie reveals that she is pregnant not only is she pregnant she's married so um i'm just going to read you a bit from page 124 i'm pregnant no squealed cricket then slapped her hand over her mouth she slowly removed her fingers you can't be you're not married surprise number two said leslie i've been married for over two years i wanted to tell you sooner but dad surely would have thrown me out cricket practically fainted on the bed who who I can't tell you, not yet. Fear clutched at Cricket's chest. But what about Daddy? If you tell him, he will throw you out. I can't bear to be here without you. Leslie nodded. Yeah, I know. As, so as long as I keep my mouth shut, I can stay. Soon, though, I'll have to say something. She patted her stomach. I've been racking my brain to come up with a way to break the news. If I do have to go, though, we've got a second income. It isn't the greatest, but we could survive. I have a third surprise. A dark shadow fell over Cricket's bed. Fearfully, she looked over Leslie's shoulder. Consider the news broken, said her father. Leslie's shoulders stiffened. Slowly, she turned to face her father. Pack your things and get out. I always knew you were nothing more than a tramp. Oh, and then he hits her. So that's class. Um, again, not someone who should be invited to Thanksgiving dinner, but this all gets brushed under the rug pretty quickly. So one, I don't understand why he's calling her tramp, because even though he is super like Christian or whatever, she's married. And if he heard her say she was pregnant right at the start of that conversation, he definitely heard her say that she was married straight after that. So 
married with a kid is not a tramp in terms of his like conservative worldview that he clearly has and has demonstrated in the book it's basically the natural order of things so that confused me a little bit also at the end of the book leslie reveals that she has a two-year-old kid as well as the kid that she's currently pregnant with which means that two years ago she successfully hid a pregnancy from her dad somehow but she's worried that for some reason he'll spot this one it's all very confusing and strange and I don't really get it. But um, just a another illustration of Old Man Binder and his very strange character. I also mentioned that at various points of the book, Tilly, the character um, who's like Bethany's best friend, is gives some like really weird long speeches about homeschooling and how it might be a good idea. Sort of like it's the topic of uh, an essay that she was asked to write for school and is just so excited to share it that she just blurts it out. So basically half of page 139 and all of page 140 is just her talking about the various reasons that a parent might want to homeschool. Uh, and it just kind of goes on and on and on with like no input from anyone else as if like the author was just like, hey, you know what is a, an issue that I feature in this book and that I'd like to devote some time to discussing? Here is my book report on homeschooling. And then just wrote said Tilly at the end. It's, it's just very bizarre. Also, for some strange reason, on page 146, there's just a random notation that says Tuesday afternoon in, in a scene break. This is never used before and never used again. So it seems kind of weird to just pop up once out of all the books and not just to say have a page break which have been used and then say bethany sat on the bleachers on tuesday afternoon why did we have to have a heading for that that's just just a random thing that kind of annoyed me just a little bit now there's a moment later on where for various reasons the girls are again out at the orchard at night and they find cricket who's been attacked like hit on the head from behind and left in a bush so they return her home and old man binder is quick to interrogate them as to why they were on his property in the middle of the night which is a valid question so then he kind of demands this of them and this happens on page 165 well the girls remained mute mrs bindart set a tray of mugs on the table steaming with hot cocoa shut up jim he stared at her his eyes round with disbelief all three girls leaned towards mrs bindart as if to examine a new species of bug charming Mrs. Binder cleared her throat and wiped her hands on an apron so faded that the print, whatever it had been, was barely visible. I said shut up, and I meant just that, she stared at him defiantly. They've done us a good turn. Take it for what it is. Old man Binder stuttered, but nothing came out. There will be plenty of time for explanations later, she said, her voice growing stronger, her small shoulders squaring. Right now we have one daughter gone, one with a concussion and possible head trauma, and a son in the hospital. With three for three, I suggest you get your head out of your behind. She turned to Nam. Look at you, shivering. Would you like to sit down, dear? Nam threw a hateful look at Bethany. No, thank you, ma'am. And then, to their collective amazement, old man Binder began to cry. Huge rasping sounds that cut to the soul. This is all very heartwarming and touching because his wife, who has been mute for two years, has just randomly made him cocoa and started talking. And although she says there's plenty of time for explanations later, those explanations never come. It's never really said why she was silent for two years. I mean, like, I know she probably had a lot of, like, grief and stuff to deal with, but there's there's nothing specifically traumatising that kept her silent. And she just kind of returns to her normal housekeeping duties. And let's be honest, at this point, if I was her eldest daughter, who's just been kind of filling in for her for two years, and then she just kind of snapped out of it with no mention, I 
I'd be fucking pissed. Like, it didn't even take any effort to really, like, bring her out of it. She didn't come out of it when Tad got his finger chopped off. She didn't come out of it when Leslie disappeared after being hit on the head by her father. She hasn't come out of it all this time witnessing the kind of emotional abuse that he's been heaping on his family. Oh, but now, now on this rainy night, she just fancied a cup of hot chocolate, so she's going to start talking again. The conclusion of the book is not as melodramatic as the the other two. Like in the first one, we had that gun-wielding confession from Bethany's magical disappearing soon-to-be stepmother. And then the second one, we had a bunch of people die, either by getting murdered or falling off cliffs. Uh, This one, we just have basically Bethany and Sydney break into Janet's house, not really knowing that it's her house. And they find evidence that she's been casting spells on Tad. And there's basically the reason behind these various weird cursed objects they've been finding. And they find her diary, which helpfully spells out the fact that she's in love with Tad. But he decided to dump her for the much more level-headed Alice. And she really couldn't handle that. So she decided to start fucking around with things on the farm. Putting these random items around to try and make him fall back in love with her. And when all else failed, poison Alice. And her dad was kind of aware of some of the stuff she was doing because he, she had been stealing his car to follow Bethany and the others around and had also crashed it into Bethany's car earlier. But he wasn't really aware of like the extent to which she would go. But she attacks Bethany and Sydney. Bethany manages to fight her off. And then she gets run down by the same black car from earlier, which is being driven by her father who in the ensuing crash is also mortally wounded and dies. I said it was less melodramatic. I didn't say it wasn't melodramatic. But that all takes place in a handful of pages and is very neatly dealt with. Aside from my lingering concerns about what the fuck happened with the apple, the rest of it kind of makes sense. Um, And we're told that all the charms that they thought were curse items also are multi-purpose and were love spells. They just didn't realise it. And... We get told a number of things that kind of tie it all together. Although the black rabbits are never explained. No one ever explicitly says, Janet must have stolen one from the school's agricultural lab. Um, But I'm prepared to let that go as just being something that's kind of obvious and that my brain can just fill in without being explicitly told that. What I'd like to be explicitly told is what happened with the apple. So if anyone knows, get in touch. Now, you might recall me giving the book some grief at the start of this episode because obviously it's not meant to be fairy tale magic it's meant to be like wicker it's meant to be the real witchcraft that people practice and okay maybe you could read that healing spell as being just a little poetic license and you would be fair enough in doing that but i deny i revoke your uh, poetic license on page 255 which is so near the end of the book that i'd kind of decided to just review this one nicely aside from the whole apple business um but this i just could not let go of so basically bethany and sydney are having a little moment that put me in mind of that thing that happens at the, the adams family movie where wednesday's out in the graveyard with that guy she met at summer camp they're just like holding hands it's really cute so it reminded me of that. That's just a random thing that I threw in. But then they hear or smell some weird things and start talking about throwing up protection spells. And I'm like, oh, God, what's going to happen? So this is what happens on page 255. New shadows slid down the wall, moving rapidly to the middle of the floor. 
coalescing in a murky puddle of undulating blackness, the room filled with a horrible stench. Oh, cried Bethany, what is that smell? The phantom rose, a long arm extended, its head crooked and bent. Janet, cried Bethany. Sydney tried to jump forward to protect her, but his injuries slowed him down. Bethany was already on her feet, pushing him back, facing the demented creature alone, her heart pounding in her chest, her breath fast and frightened. This is between us, said Bethany through clenched teeth, staring at the evil that was once a girl named Janet. Bethany realised that she had no tools, only that of her true self. She gulped furiously, her skin growing clammy. For a moment she felt a strange sensation of disembodiment, her mind grasping for the right thing to do. Nauseating spurts of adrenaline chugged through her veins as the monstrous evil crept towards her. Think! Think! And then she proceeds to recite uh, the witch's rune uh, in a kind of action-packed sequence where she is attacked by what is essentially Janet's ghost. And then on page 257 we get the thrilling end of this scene. Janet cringed, stumbled, but continued to reach for Bethany, her rotting arms growing longer, nails clawing towards Bethany's face. By all the powers of land and sea, as I will, so mote it be. By all the might of moon and sun, as I say, it shall be done. Flames burst from the logs in the fireplace, lighting the room in orange glow, the heat sizzling Janet's skin as she thrust herself towards Bethany. Bethany clapped her hands three times, screaming, Be gone! Back to the grave! And may the goddess have mercy on your miserable soul! The raven screamed, a horrible crash, and the next moment the room was filled with beating wings and raven shrieks. The bird dove for Janet's heart, its beak piercing through her chest, flying straight into her blackened soul, her blood-curdling shrieks echoing through the room as her essence burst apart, scattering shafts of skittering light that rebounded off the walls in a giant thunderclap. And no explanation, like, in the first book, remember, we saw her dad's magical disappearing girlfriend get torn apart by dogs and then were assured that that was just an astral event that only Bethany saw and that in reality she just had, like, a, a heart attack and fell down. What happens in this one is Sydney is like, oh, that a girl, you dealt with that ghost good and proper. And then her dad comes in and is like, we need to talk about how you're going to handle your car payments, young lady. And she's like, oh, dad. And then the book ends so apparently that happened um so even if over the past like reviews of the first book and the second book you've been like oh sarah you're just being mean she's just using a bit of poetic license with how she describes wiccan rituals yeah at the end of book three they fight a ghost so come at me bro there's no poetic licensing your way out of that one which is fine if you want to write a fantasy book write a fantasy book but then like literally three pages after that you get the same spiel about how i wanted to write a book about how wicker is real and hollywood magic is not and i apparently didn't realize that i wrote a ghost murder into this book one last thing and i thought i'd mention it just because it was really weird i noticed when i picked the book up that it had kind of uh different colored pages in the middle and i've read like a long time ago like novelizations of Buffy the Vampire Slayer like books uh, the novelizations of the episode and in the middle they had like pictures like stills from the episodes that they were novelizing and in some other books they've just had like pictures of things that were being referenced in the book if it was a book about like a museum various other things or fantasy maps and I was like what could possibly be in the centre of Silver Ravenwolf's book? And I kind of expected it to maybe be a picture of the front cover of Teen Witch or some illustration or something showing the girls doing magic. 
Um, I was like, okay, so it's, it's probably a picture. Uh, it is not. It is an advert. It says, wear the witch's symbol of power. And it says that you can write in to Llewellyn and send in $13 to get a pentacle necklace, which seems kind of um, crassly commercial, if I'm being honest. And I expect better from Llewellyn uh, because I, I own quite a lot of their books and I think they're quite good. But, I mean, you can put an ad at the end of the book. Why, why smack dab in the middle? Right at the moment when the police are there to announce that Alice has been murdered. Kind of breaks the tension just a little bit. Um, so that was the Witches Chillers series. As you can probably tell, I was a massive fan. I did like elements of the plots of the books, but I felt like those plots were kind of poorly carried off and poorly plotted out and seemed to be not well thought through, even in terms of continuity from book to book or even from like beginning of book to end of book. Um, which is unfortunate. I'm not saying that Silver Ravenwolf is a bad writer, because this is just three books out of the many that she's read. And when I read Solitary Witch, I didn't criticise it for being badly written. She can definitely write and string a sentence together. And some of the passages in this are quite descriptive. They use quite nice language. It's just, I don't think dialogue and fictional plots are her strength. So with that in mind, I am still excited to get into her non-fiction books, because I do think that's what she did better um, from what I've read previously. So I'm not knocking Silver Ravenwolf as an author, I'm just knocking this particular book series for not being great. And I've been accused, I know, on Twitter of maybe just not liking young adult fiction about witches. Like, no, because you may have noticed that I have written young adult fiction about witches. And although, yes, I was critical of some aspects of some of the other young adult books that I've looked at, I did still predominantly like them. I mean, I read the beginning part of the Circle of Three series many times as a teenager, and I would have read it all if I'd had access to the rest of the books. And I've also enjoyed things like Season of the Witch, which was an excellent young adult novel. But I don't think that books for younger people should be written in a slapdash way that doesn't really make a huge amount of sense. I think maybe they should be shorter. Maybe they should deal with specific issues geared towards teens and should, yes, maybe be plotted in a way that's more high octane and exciting to keep younger readers interested. And those are all things that this series does do quite well. It's just that it's not written in a way that is technically very good, which is unfortunate because you want a product to work properly before you sell it to people. And unfortunately, if a book isn't written in a way that makes sense, it's kind of failed before you even get into what it's about or how it's presented or who it's targeted at. So uh, I take exception to the idea that I don't like a genre that I actually have loved for quite a long time. Um, it's just that I get kind of annoyed when things haven't been thought about very well and haven't been made the best of themselves because there are some good ideas in these books. The whole poison apple thing, I was really hoping to enjoy that and really kind of rooting for it being quite a well-plotted book. And there are some ideas in there, but it's just not polished enough. It's not written in a way that I was able to enjoy, which was very unfortunate. I do have two other Civil Ravenwolf novels uh, currently on the Amazon to read list. Um, those are, I think, aimed at adults. So I'd be interested to see if there's a difference in tone. I don't know if these were published before or after, but I'd be interested to see if maybe 
uh, her writing style had developed in a sense um, or if maybe she'd like tried a bit harder to plot books aimed at adults uh, so with that in mind I will be hopefully reviewing those soon and getting to the bottom of my Silver Ravenwolf non-fiction pile as well and in the meantime hit me up with any of the books and things that you'd like me to look at if you look at the links in the description box for this episode you'll be able to find a link to the goodreads list where you can vote on which book i read next and hopefully push your favorite to the top you can also add books to that so i can see what you'd like to see me review and you can also find a link to the amazon wishlist where you can purchase books and have them sent to me anonymously which would be very nice of you i'm not fussing send me the oldest rankest copy amazon has for £2.50 and i'll still be happy don't worry about it also you can find various links to twitter and the email account for this podcast so you can get in touch and let me know if you've read these books if you have fond memories of them what you thought about them if you can explain the whole apple thing to me i'd be really happy to hear from you but in the meantime i'll see you in the next episode bye